Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch, and this is a podcast of conversations with doctors, developers, and decision makers that are playing in the Australian health tech scene today. With me is Tim Blake. Tim is Managing Director of Semantic Consulting, a health consulting firm focused on leading digital change in healthcare. He was previously Chief Information Officer at the Tasmanian Department of Health and Human Services, Director of Rural eHealth Strategy at New South Wales Health, and Strategic Advisor at uh, NETA and the Commonwealth Department of Health. Uh, recently, he's been particularly involved in the developments of, uh, of health informatics, and particularly the emergence of the fire standards and protocols. He writes, he consults, he talks, he moderates, often about how health's being disrupted in exciting and complex ways, and he's here with me in the studio today. Hi, Tim. Hi, Pete. Good to be here. Excellent, excellent. Look, I, I, like I said, I usually find you that you're, uh, you're either talking or moderating at a, at a big health conference or, or, or walking the, uh, the exhibition halls, I guess, of it, and, uh, or you're commenting um, intelligently online about something important. But, but other than that, what, what do you actually do? Well, it's good to know that your um, your first impression of me is as a shameless self-promoter. <laughs> I think there's probably something in that. Um, look, so my, my business has a number of um, elements to it. I guess first and foremost, I'm involved in developing digital health strategies for organisations. Um, I love showing organisations what is possible with digital health and teaching them to think broadly about the exciting future that's possible through not just new technologies, but also through um, new techniques and new social dynamics. And we can talk about that in a minute. Mm. Um, I um, have the privilege of working with a number of startups around the world in the digital health space um, and I've coached organisations in the UK, US, Canada and Australia um, and that's a real privilege to see some of the excitement and energy that's going into digital health that's um, really been a lot of fun. Um, I do a bit of innovation myself and have built some products um, having uh, formerly been in, in geek rehab um, that's gone badly wrong and have been even writing code recently oh. around some areas of great passion. Um, as you know, I also do some kind of shameless self-promotion on Twitter um, and in my blog um, and have enjoyed writing on a number of topics and engaging with people around the world. And I think the uh, health sub-community on Twitter is probably one of the, the healthier ones where there's actually some really positive debate. Mm. Um, so I've enjoyed that. Last and not least, been involved, as you said, in health informatics and fire and the development of various standards in Australia and the exciting potential that poses for um, solving some of our interoperability challenges. So a number of pieces to what I do, I'm very passionate about working in healthcare and we all come from a personal place of experience with the health system and that's really what motivates me to do this work. So, so a lot for us to touch on, uh, you mentioned a lot of things that I, was, that I, I won't jump in and ask you uh, questions just yet, but I, I guess let, let, let's set the scene, the big bad question of what is digital health? I mean a lot of people have different definitions and priorities, but um, from, from your perspective, digital health. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? We started maybe four or five years ago using this phrase digital health and it seemed to overnight creep up on us and, and replace the use of the word e-health. And as I work with a lot of organisations, a lot of people are kind of quietly confused about what happened there. Um, I remember working at various government departments that changed their names almost overnight from e-health to digital health whilst keeping their remits exactly the same. And it begs the question whether digital health is fundamentally different to e-health. Um, I, I think it really is, and I think it's important that we understand how and why it's different. Um, 
Firstly, for me, e-health is very much about supply-side IT systems. So systems for IT, for health providers um, that help us with efficiency, with quality and with safety, but predominantly systems for health providers. And in the e-health world, you know, sometimes we might have a patient portal, but usually that was an afterthought Mm. um, and very much uh, a web portal. As we introduce this concept of digital into health, I think it brings not just technologies for health providers, but also on the consumer side, um, some of the emerging tools there. It opens up very much the world of um, mobile devices and mobile apps. And in bringing those consumer side things in, it brings in a number of the consumer side dynamics as well. So not only are we seeing the consumerization of health devices, for example, traditionally devices that have only been available to medical practitioners are now in the hands of consumers with all of the, um, the joy and the risks that that brings. But also we're seeing effectively the democratization of health information. Patients now have access to all of this information they previously didn't have access to. And that's culturally changing the relationship between patients and providers. Um, It's driving what we call engaged patients. So patients who want to take um, a greater account of their own accountability for their Mm. own health care. Um, it's it's driving patients, and this is both good and, and bad, to behave as consumers of healthcare. And consumers are people who um, shop for the best price, who care about quality, who care about accessibility. So it's actually not only um, um, bringing new technologies to the table, but it's fundamentally changing the, the culture of the health system. And as we think about how deeply embedded that culture is, um, this is not going to be a digital transformation like Airbnb in the accommodation and hotels world, which really occurred over the course of two or three years, or Uber in the taxi industry, which similarly occurred over a very short space of time. But because of this deeply embedded culture and often deeply embedded paternalism within healthcare practice, we're looking at a journey of transformation that probably is a generational transformation process. Um, but one that's that's very very exciting. That's like a common it's a common question, isn't it? I can I can order my pizza and get get a guy to deliver it all on an app or even a drone soon, right? But how come I can't get a prescription without physically going in, parking my car, and you know? Doing all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, um, yeah, and we see various organisations, probably more so in the US than in Australia, who have thought that they could transform healthcare in that short space of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, without taking full account of the cultural change that's required. Um, Healthcare is a system that works based on trust um, and it takes a long time, particularly for health providers, to trust new technologies and to embed them into their existing clinical workflows in ways that work. And in order to do that, you have to understand incentivisation, you have to understand the financial models of healthcare. And unfortunately, a lot of digital health startups have really floundered at that point where they haven't had a commercial model that works today. Um, They've looked for a model that might work when we have outcomes-based funding in healthcare at some point in the future. Um, But unfortunately, they're unable to make money today and that can lead to real challenges. Um, I I guess I'm also interested in, in the digital health space. We also see a number of techniques that come about because of the digital component. So I'm particularly interested in gamification and the potential of using techniques like that under the banner of digital health Mm. to drive behavioural modification um, through mobile channels using mobile devices and mobile apps, uh, but to reach into the lives of of almost every Australian. So 
over 90% of Australians um, have a smartphone device. And hence we have this new digital channel that allows us to send information to and try and modify the behavior of people on the end of those devices. Mm. And likewise gather information from them, you know, things like patient reported outcomes or information from consumer health devices. Yep. Um, and that represents a huge potential for new models of care. So what do you, uh, so gamification you mentioned um, for those that, that have heard of and don't know or haven't come across the phrase, what, what do we mean, particularly in the health space? So it's the bringing of kind of game-like dynamics. So often the element of competition, um, sometimes it literally feels like a game, other times it's just competing against your friends. Mm. What sits behind that is this notion of, of both intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So extrinsic motivation is motivation from outside of yourself. You are rewarded for a particular behavior. I give you a prize if you achieve a particular goal, for example. Mm. Um, intrinsic motivation is this idea that I'm motivated from within. So my sense of identity in, in who I am and uh, what I do and um, professional pride, for example, um, motivates me. Now, what, what we know about these dynamics is that um, um, intrinsic motivation is by far the stronger form of motivation and ideally what we're seeking to do um, through some of these gamification techniques is drive people towards a new sense of identity, a new sense of internal motivation in their health related behaviours and often gamification I think we're learning can be used to drive people towards that. We often start with an extrinsic model so think about Fitbit for example mm. Um, where you compete with your friends for a certain step count. Um, arguably, after a certain point in time, three to six months, people tend to either stop wearing their Fitbit or they lose interest in the competition but keep wearing it anyway because they've become this person who says, well, I am a person who is healthy and I yeah. achieve this certain number of steps. That's just who I am. Yeah. So my theory in this space is that we have a certain period of time through health behavioral modification techniques using gamification to either convert people to a new sense of identity and hence a new motivation or they will drop off and, and it's a very interesting time where we're testing various hypotheses in that space yeah, interesting interesting um we were speaking we were speaking um before we started recording about social prescribing and i want to talk a little bit more about that so um Tell me a little bit more about social prescribing. So for me, social prescribing is another dynamic that comes under the, the banner of um, digital health. And arguably it's come out of the UK. And the idea behind social prescribing is that many people who have health issues, particularly chronic health issues, um, underlying those health issues are deeper psychosocial health issues. Um, often related to what we call the social determinants of health. So that can be your educational level um, or your socio-economic status or your health or functional literacy, these kind of things. Mm. Um, those, those factors have a huge influence on your health outcomes over your life course. Um, I guess one of the challenges medicine has had is that um, it's been very good at treating symptoms but not always getting to root causes mm. and in treating symptoms we often give medications right. and I think there's this growing recognition that whilst medication still has absolutely a, a place in some instances it may not be the appropriate first course of action mm. now look good doctors have always done this and made other recommendations around diet and um, lifestyle sleep mm. hydration whatever that would be exercise 
Um, and in the UK, this, it's becoming seen as best practice now, or certainly more common practice, um, rather than just telling a patient to, for example, if they're obese, to lose weight, <laughs> which, which from psychology we know is not particularly effective as a mechanism. Actually identifying some of the root causes of that, which may be social isolation, loneliness, mm. um, untreated depression or anxiety, and actually giving those people prescriptions for um, activity or volunteering or things that will really not necessarily completely solve those problems, but get closer to addressing root cause. Like a, like a physical prescription? like a Yeah, what you might call a lifestyle script. And again, this is not an entirely new concept and has been tried at various points before. But I think it, it kind of comes together with the elements of digital health, like mobile devices, and enables us to do new things. Now, in the UK, this is still predominantly a verbal model. So we either write on a post-it note or we verbally give the patient some advice to go and volunteer for this organisation. Um, one of the things I've been working on is, is systems to support health providers in doing these acts of social prescribing. So setting goals for a patient under a care plan. And those goals can be goals around anything. They can be educational goals. They can be relationship goals. But goals that really try to address more some of the root causes and then actions that support those goals so it might be that you need to um, use a mobile app or to read a fact sheet or to go and join an organization or to go to your RSL a couple of times a month maybe that act of um, addressing social isolation will do more for obesity in the first instance than just the instruction to eat less yes haven't we already got that though? We've got the you know the doctor will print out a PDF about you know this is some information about uh, you know having a healthy lifestyle or this is you know something out of their drawer that I take away as a patient that I take home and put in a drawer as well. But it's yes, a, we, we, that already exists, doesn't it? Yeah, look, that's absolutely right. We have we have fact sheets, and, and we talk a lot right. in primary care about fact sheets. Yes. Um, that's based on a model in psychology called the information deficit model, and that assumes that because a patient doesn't know something, that therefore that's why they don't behave in a particular way. Yeah. Um, again, psychology has shown that that model to, to not be true. People hold their beliefs about themselves in a very deep way, mm. And just giving them information is necessary, but not sufficient to change those beliefs. Mm. Um, so whilst this is a complex area, um, it's certainly worth looking at some of the behavioural psychology the, um, the, that sits behind this. And one of the areas of interest for me is something called the likelihood expansion model that talks about how you go about the process of changing those deeply held beliefs. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, to cut to the chase, showing patients that we have goals um, that go beyond just verbal goals, that things that we actually are taking seriously as part of a care plan, mm. um, showing patients that we intend to review those goals because they're captured in the system, yeah. allowing a patient to report against those goals in the interim, yeah. and producing a formal script for the patient that looks and feels to some extent like a medication script, mm will actually change the seriousness with which they take those recommendations. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to note that you know if you go to your doctor today, we were discussing this before as well, and come away with nothing, um, you feel like you've failed to a certain extent. You know, you feel like, why did I go to the doctor? I didn't get a medication. You know, yeah. what was the point of that? He just gave me, she just gave me some advice. Yes. Um, and there's a sense in which that, you know, there's a real psychology to that. Well, what if 
you came away with, I'm not going to give you a medication right now because in the first instance, I want us to try these things. Mm. And here are these things and here's your goal. I want you to lose a kilo in the next month. Mm. Um, I want you to try and exercise three times a week. I want you to get eight hours sleep a night. Then let's talk about how you're doing. Mm. If, if you've done a good job against that, maybe we won't need the medication. Yeah. Yeah. So arming health providers with these tools, I think is... Um, it's going to take a long time to make these changes, but headed towards a, a better practice of medicine that maybe is a little less reliant on, on medication and medicalising certain issues. Mm. Look, I fully recognise that um, there are many challenges with this because the particularly primary care is, is incentivised around a model that, that behaves that the, yeah, yeah, we, <laughs> in yeah, this way. Medicare will pay for care plans, but, but how do you, you know, what do you do about you know, not incentivising them to, to do these care yeah, look, um, I, I think very much we're, we're looking at a model that, that still pays the Medicare rebate for a care plan. It's just a care plan that's got a much broader definition sure. than what it traditionally would have had. So um, goals within that care plan that go way beyond simply medical goals or, mm. um, yeah, those kind of things. Mm. Um, so more broadly then, in your perspective, Tim, like, what we've, we've got different stakeholders in the health game. We've got patients, we've got doctors. Um, what, what do patients actually care about? What do doctors care about? Are we still aligned? Are we close? How do we even know? What's the, what's, what's the prognosis? Yeah, look, there's a, there's a number of parts to that. Um, patients care about many things, and there's a broad spectrum of patients, but I think there are some principles that are emerging um, through the engaged patient movement. And for those of you that haven't um, read his work, it's worth checking out um, E-Patient Dave, the original engaged patient, and one of his, um, he wrote a little book called Let Patients Help, um, a fantastic 60-page um, tract on, on the philosophy of engaged patients. Mm -hmm. I think fundamentally patients want to be treated as equal, um, not equal in knowledge, but equal in status within the health system. Mm -hmm. And too many patients that I speak to, myself included, have had the experience of being talked down to or told what their care will be. And I think it's important that patients are seen as equal and do have a say in their own care. Mm -hmm. Um, E-Patient Dave has this mantra that says, nothing about me without me, meaning that all decisions right. about your care should include the patient and or their carers. Mm -hmm. and, and I think there's really something to that. Also, when you consider the democratisation of health information, sometimes I refer to this as the, the healthcare reformation. And um, I don't know if you've, you've heard this analogy, but in the ref prior to the reformation, the Bible was in Latin and the priesthood were the only people trained to read Latin. So they would tell their congregation what they needed to know or what they thought they needed to know. And then through the printing press and the translation of the Bible into English, you had this democratisation of the Bible and suddenly people started reading it for themselves. And it fundamentally changed the dynamic between the priesthood and, and the people in the congregation. By analogy, there's something similar going on in healthcare. We're seeing the democratisation of health information. So through the internet, through the democratisation of health information, the amazing sets of clinical resources through particularly US organisations like Mayo and Harvard, patients have access to a huge amount of information. Mm. Through PubMed, patients can go and read clinical papers. So the more educated end of the engaged patient spectrum are reading clinical research trials yeah. for themselves and trying to take them to GPs to discuss. Yeah. And it's very interesting to see what happens. Some GPs are incredibly progressive and welcoming of that. Yeah. Um, others will shut that down as soon as it starts because they're totally uncomfortable with the dynamic. 
but what we're seeing here is this fundamental change in the relationship. Yes. Now, my desire is to see that relationship stay united. Mm. You know, we, we are equal, we're just different. And doctors' role is to help patients navigate through the health system. They are expert, um, but they're not more important. There is a danger that if we don't do this in lockstep, that that relationship will fracture and there'll be a loss of trust. Mm. Um, so a lot of the work I do is about trying to empower health providers to deal with this engaged patient dynamic and some of the things that it is changing in the relationship between them. Mm-hmm. What, what's in it for the doctor then, I guess, in, the, in that respect, you know, looking at what the patient wants um, is one thing. But, you know, I guess, like you say, many good doctors um, are doing this now. And, and, and I guess if, if, if all the doctors were doing it, then it wouldn't be a problem. So what, what's, what's the gap here? Look, it's, it's so hard to characterise a single thing because there's such a spectrum. You know, we think there's a real spectrum when it comes to patients. I'd argue that with, with, with doctors and health providers, it's an even broader spectrum. Um, I work with some incredible doctors who are incredibly digitally progressive, who are willing to adopt new models of care, sometimes even regardless of inter- incentivisation. Yeah. Some of them will do the right thing regardless of whether they are paid for it. Yeah. Um, others will flatly refuse to do anything new if they're not paid for it, and, and even if they are in some cases um, so there's a there's a huge range um, look I so I, it's hard to say what doctors care about I mean I, ultimately the majority of doctors want to deliver high quality care safely to be paid for it in a fair and equitable way um, I think it's just going to take some time for us to embed new technologies in into existing clinical workflows in ways that actually work and we have to be very careful about the assumption that digital health will automatically make things better we have to very deliberately and intentionally design new models of care that take account of financial incentivization, clinical culture, existing digital literacy with health providers, and then design those in ways that will work efficiently for doctors. That's not easy to do. Um, very few people have deep experience in doing that right now. Tim, I, I know that half the time I go to speak to you, you're in another country. So um, you've got some insights from other parts of the world in relation to health, particularly the UK, um, but other parts as well. So so Australia, I used to think um, it was handy being either running a company or doing anything actually in Australia, because if you wanted to see what's happening in the future, you just usually look at what else is happening elsewhere in the world because we're a couple of years behind. But that was, I've learned that that's a little bit generic sometimes and sometimes misguided but from your perspective are we are we ahead or behind um, other parts of the world when it comes to healthcare? Yeah look you'd probably love a simple answer on this and, and I'm not going to give you a simple answer because I don't think it's simple um, you know as I for example talk to some of our friends in in the US it's interesting we we see ourselves as a few years behind the US mm-hmm. and they often see themselves as behind us right Um, So I think you have to break that down into different dimensions. I I think in terms of technology, research and development, innovation, the US undoubtedly leads the way. They have the greatest investment in those areas. But that doesn't always translate to usage. It doesn't translate to better outcomes necessarily. I think Australia is great in that we have always, and this is true across a number of fields, punched above our weight. Um, Australia is great at innovation. Um, sadly, a lot of those people do leave Australia to yes. get the funding for that innovation, which is which is very sad. I think the other advantage in Australia is because we're a relatively small country. Um, 
we build a lot of generalists who have a very big picture view of the world. Um, in the larger economies of the US and the UK to a certain extent, people tend to be more specialised on their particular area because you know, health informatics, for example, is a very dedicated field with subspecialities in the US. Um, Australia doesn't have that luxury of being a big enough market to support that, mm. so many of us have to be generalists. Um, whilst that you know, can lead to less deep specialisation, it does lead to big picture thinkers who I think can make a big impact. Um, so I, I don't necessarily see us as ahead or behind. I think it depends on, on what elements. And I think there's some really exciting work going on in different pockets across Australia of trialling new things. And I think we have much greater potential to translate that to a large scale than in the US. I think you also need to factor into that the differences between having a universal public healthcare system and the ability to do things sometimes that don't necessarily translate to a direct financial result. Um, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages. Culturally, it's harder to do the work, but it does mean that sometimes you can do things for the sake of quality and safety that don't necessarily generate immediate efficiency. Yes. Whereas where you have a largely private healthcare system, um, efficiency is often the first and foremost thing that you care about, even above quality and safety. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the reasons why we get such good value for money out of the Australian healthcare system. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's a complex equation, but I think there's there's a lot to be positive about in Australia and, and the innovation that we're seeing in the digital healthcare space. So if we were to pull it all together then, um, what are some priorities we should be thinking about when it comes to, to digital health? Look, there's a lot of exciting areas and I, and I think I've mentioned a few of them. Um, for me, one of the fundamental elements of digital health is the mobile device. Right. Um, and I think we need to see past its current form factor to the fact that what it fundamentally is, is a digital channel to the patient. It's a way of giving and receiving information, of um, injecting health behavioural change into the lives of people. Now, in five years' time, in 10 years' time, that mobile device might be wearable clothing, it might be something completely different, but it will still be a digital channel. So if we view it in that way and, and kind of forget the fact that it's you know in a particular shape and size at this point in time, we can start to use that as the foundation to build different models of care. Uh, models of care that include the patient and the patient's perspective on their health. Um, one, uh, I've, I've talked obviously about gamification, the potential that has for health um, behavioural modification. One of the other elements that I'm really interested in is patient reported outcomes. So effectively patients self-reporting how they're going in a number of different dimensions. So let's say you're a cancer patient and you're now at home having been in hospital. Um, receiving chemotherapy and you typically would have a degree of pain perhaps you might have nausea you might have other symptoms a patient reported outcome allows you to report against those on a zero to five scale for example if we design our models of care correctly using mobile devices connecting all the way through to emrs mm -hmm. we can use those patient reported outcomes in near real time to look at whether you are deteriorating so increasingly by applying algorithms to that data and we have to be very careful not to flood doctors with vast quantities of data yes. um, we have to separate the signal from the noise as, as i describe it mm -hmm. 
we can apply techniques that say, look, Pete, you, you know, you reported a two yesterday and a three today, and it turns out to be a four tomorrow, you're deteriorating. We want to pull you in to have a conversation about how you're going before you show up unexpectedly in the emergency department. Um, I think by picking the pieces out of digital health, you know, whether it be consumer health devices or uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, we have the ability to design these wonderful new models of care um, that can do things that we just can't do today. But like I said, it has to be very, very intentional and very conscious of culture and incentivization and those things as well. Tim, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Vic. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name's Peter Birch. Go check out our socials, share the love, send me a note if you've got some feedback, or even if you know someone that might be awesome to have on the show in future. Look forward to chatting to you next time.